We moved from one state of emergency to another. Can BC afford to continue to support fossil fuel projects when the impacts of climate change could be devastating? Is it time to look away from pipelines and LNG projects? On the line is Sonia Firstnow, leader of the BC Green Party. Good morning, Sonia. Good morning. Is this the you know, this is this the best time to bring up the issue of climate change? People are generally exhausted because of the pandemic and now the fires. Is this really a good time for this this kind of discussion? Yeah, I think that given where we're at globally uh, with climate change and what we're seeing in terms of the impacts of climate change in our province, uh, it is an important time to talk about climate change and to recognize that. The heat waves, the wildfires, the droughts, flooding, these are all what have been predicted for a long time by scientists as a result of warming the planet due to greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, we have to start taking this very seriously and uh, ensure that that we have governments that are, are not just saying they care about climate change, but taking action. But the NDP, they say they care about the environment. Even the BC Liberals in their time did some things that were helpful to the environment. Uh, are you not sensing that uh, uh, things are, that they're paying any attention to this, given uh, what we're seeing, as you describe? I think in terms of um, the NDP, I think the, the one of the most challenging actions that they've taken since they've come into power is to increase subsidies to the oil and gas industry. Uh, Stand on Earth recently did a report on the subsidies from this government, and uh, this year it will be $1.3 billion in fossil fuel subsidies, a lot of those in the form of deep well royalty credits, which is uh, a tax credit for fracking. And fracking not only produces enormous amounts of methane, but also has really significant impacts on groundwater and uh, it uses an enormous amount of water. And so, uh, you know, it's pretty hard to square what the NDP says about climate, that they they take it seriously and and that they have a a world-leading climate plan, uh, and what they actually do, which is to subsidize the oil and gas industry and to continue to allow logging of old-growth forests, which are some of our best carbon capturing uh, sort of uh, life forms that we have. And, uh, and the other thing is, is the need for really significant reforms of forest management generally, not just how we, uh, you know, preventing the, the logging of old growth, but we, we need to look at how we manage forests. Our, our forests are net emitters of carbon in British Columbia. But some would argue that what we're doing, that the balance is important to keep. You can't you know, BC relies on cutting down trees. We rely on extracting our resources to pay for all the things we have. We're heading into a very challenging financial uh, situation over the next several years because of what happened over the last year financially. Uh, that balance, you know, how do you keep that balance when you need the cash to do the work and, and to help, you, to, you know, to the, the argument that they often make is, well, we need the money to fix the environment. We're doing what we can, but we can't just, you know, bankrupt our province at the same time because that won't help the environment either. Well, facts really matter, George. The, the, the subsidies for fossil fuels actually uh, will cost the government more than what they spend on climate action, but also 
<laughs> the revenues from oil and gas royalties in our province uh, come in at less than the subsidies that are going out right now. So this is a this is a not an equation that is helpful for uh, BC's economy. And I think that yes, historically this province has been a very natural resource based economy. Uh, the the stats can and data do mm-hmm. not tell that story anymore. Our economy is far more diverse. And uh, what we need to be leaning into is ensuring that we are creating a clean economy and opportunities for long-term sustainable economic activity in communities all over BC. And one of the ways to do that is to actually lean into building uh, renewable energy infrastructure at a community level mm-hmm. all across the province. And I, I look at the last heat dome we had, and uh, here on Vancouver Island, there were some concerns because the the main cables that provide electricity over to the island, one of them was bulging and was no longer operable. Uh, and this really hits home that the, the impacts from climate change are going to further undermine uh, our infrastructure. And so what we need is infrastructure that actually creates greater resiliency. And one of the ways to achieve that is to ensure that our communities, we have a distributed renewable energy grid and system across the province uh, that ensures that we are creating that kind of energy and, and community resiliency. You use the word renewable energy as opposed to, say, clean energy, uh, you know, because, for example, nuclear power could be considered clean energy, but not necessarily renewable or not considered something that people want to jump on board with. What is, uh, you know, is there enough renewable energy? Where does that come from? And why not look at other ways to uh, create energy like nuclear, nuclear mm-hmm. Well, this is the, the the amazing thing about British Columbia is that we we are so uh, blessed with uh, extraordinary capacity for renewable energy. So we have solar uh, capacity, we have wind. You look at Tumbler Ridge; they had a project lined up, private investment in Tumbler Ridge of, of wind energy that would have created seventy percent of what Site C would create uh, without a penny from the government. And uh, I, you know, when you look at what we're capable of producing. We have geothermal in both the Northeast and Northwest. We have tidal capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sioux First Nation has combined uh, sustainable aquaculture with their solar energy projects. I mean, there there are such a, a broad range. And, and what we should be looking at ourselves as in BC is, is we want to export innovation. We should be the world leaders in creating the technology and the capacity to truly move to a renewable energy system uh, rather than using public money, taxpayer money, to prop up the oil and gas industry because it wouldn't be economically viable on its own. And even with the propping up, uh, the International Energy Agency uh, really put a a, a death knell in the coffin of of oil and gas with its report that came out this year and we are looking at potentially and very likely having uh, a lot of stranded assets in British Columbia that were uh, supported by and paid for by the provincial government. Some of the problems you describe might solve itself based on that, but how are you pushing it forward in this legislature? You obviously don't have a lot of seats and a lot of uh, push there. Um, the relationship with the NDP is not like it used to be. So how are you going to push your agenda forward in the legislature and get these things done? 
Well, I mean, I think the, what we do is we continuously put good ideas and policy uh, informed by evidence and experts in front of this government, and uh, we work with communities. Uh, Adam and I spend a lot of time uh, learning from and meeting with uh, all sorts of experts and community leaders, and we continuously provide <laughs> you know, the the path forward, because the vision that we have for BC is one that is truly resilient, livable, uh, affordable, safe, equitable. And there are lots of things that can be done right now to move us in that direction. And, and we will just continuously provide our ideas to this government. All right. Thanks for joining me this morning, Ms. Firstenau. Here to give his take on what uh, uh, Sonia Firstenau said just before the break is Stuart Muir, the Executive Director of ResourceWorks. Hey, Stuart. Good morning, George. So clearly what Ms. Firstenau had to say is nothing new to you, but uh, given what's going on literally outside our windows, isn't it now the right time for her to strike on getting people to move faster on climate change and, and, and uh, remediation policies? Yeah, I think this is the time to do that. And we have tools and levers in B.C., that most other places don't have, which is why we're in such an enviable position, supplying LNG to the world so it can reduce its reliance on higher emitting forms of energy. That's one thing. We've also got this really flexible uh, resource known as the Montney and the Horn River basins. That's where natural gas comes from, where there's incredible potential to build that clean energy future from these resources, which have um, to continue to be proven and are uh, abundant. But she, her problem is not about the, it's, it's about renewable. She wants to have renewable energy. She doesn't even talk about clean energy anymore. She doesn't even use that word, as I pointed out. She used the term always, is renewable energy. So clean energy, anything extracted from the earth uh, that's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not a go for her. And so how do you, is this, you know, is this even possible to do? Well, right now, you know, we already, as a province, most of our electricity comes from renewable resources. Mm-hmm. So we are the envy of the world, even though... So water, uh, you I mean, think like of, hydro, mainly. Hydro, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, uh, you know, over 90% of they our electricity. They don't support that either. They don't support that either. Yeah, um, it's curious. What do they support? I mean, you look at windmills. forestry, which they don't support, windmills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but where do you put them? I mean, you, you go off the northern tip of Vancouver Island. That's one place it was identified mm-hmm. as a resource, but it's really tough to put wind turbines up there. You go to areas around Tumbler Ridge and in between Dawson and Fort St. John. you got some sweet spots there for wind on some of those ridges, and there are wind farms there. Believe it or not, it's it's been happening, mm-hmm. and that feeds into the grid, and that is renewable, and it's great. We've got the uh, Fort Nelson First Nation that's investing with federal and provincial help in geothermal. I think that's something that the Green Party is in favor of. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're using former yep. natural gas wells and and know how in order to convert over to geothermal. So you know you know you think about the connectivity between the skills and the the resources to do these things. I'm in the all of the above camp, you know, all of these solutions are part <laughs> sure. of the future, right? Yeah, but I mean, are they being naive and thinking they can? Uh, I mean, move forward with what they're describing. Given that we need, we our province relies on forestry and relies on extracting resources to keep our economy going. How do you balance uh, what she describes or what she like would like to see uh, with keeping the economy afloat, especially since we've gone into some massive debt over the last yep. year? Sure. Well, BC is the only province in Canada that's got a triple A credit rating from Standard and Poor right now. 
And one of the big reasons for that is we have natural gas in the economy. You know, in a single year, you'll see investments in the Northeast, quite out of sight to the mm-hmm. average resident of, you know, up to $5 billion. We've seen years with that. You know, last year in mining and oil and gas extraction uh, investments, or two years ago, was, was around $4 billion. And that goes into building things like roads and drilling wells and putting in pipelines and gas treatment plants so that, you know, all of these things can be done successfully. That, that work is done by people. And those people are paid some of the highest wages in the economy. You know, it's about $1,800 a week that you earn if you're in oil and gas. That's almost double what the service economy works you know, Sure, but she, she talks about us become, being a leader in the world in knowledge and uh, taking, a, if we could move away from relying on uh, these resources as a part of our economy and we really get innovative, we can, we can export our innovation to the world and really make a difference. Yeah, well, that's, that's something we're already doing. We are, if you look at the consulting firms in Vancouver that come out of mining and, and natural gas, we're already exporting that. You know, we're, we're using uh, mining technologies to help Vietnam recover from the lingering effects of Agent Orange from decades ago. We're, we're pr- providing Indonesia with the regulations to develop their oil and gas industry responsibly um, because we were pioneers in that space over the last 20 years. You know, that's truly innovation. And, you know, you look around downtown Vancouver, those towers, who's working in those glass towers and the businesses there? Uh, a huge number of forest companies and oil and gas and especially mining companies uh, there. And they're not just developing resources in B.C. They're doing it all over the world in, in Africa, in South America. I mean, the innovation is happening. Yes, right. we need more of it. Welcome back. I'm George Affleck in for Mike Smith, and we got a full show today. In this half hour, we'll be taking your calls at the end of the hour. Uh, but first, uh, you know, yesterday, U.S. President Joe Biden took a radical step in the U.S. fight against COVID-19. Every federal government employee will be asked to attest to their vaccination status. Anyone who does not attest or is not vaccinated will be required to Mask no matter where they work. Test one or two times a week to see if they've they've acquired COVID. Socially distance and generally will not be allowed to travel for work. Likewise, today, I'm directing my administration to take steps to apply similar standards to all federal contractors. If you want to do business with the federal government, get your workers vaccinated. Laying down the law, President Biden there. So far in Canada and in B.C. specifically, we've seen very little mandating vaccinations uh, rules for employees. But could it happen here? Dr. Bonnie Henry spoke yesterday about looking at how they might have vaccinations and requirements uh, if you work in long-term care. Here's Dr. Henry. We're in the process of of working with HEABC, with the unions, um, and with healthcare workers themselves to make sure that we have uh, policies in place that uh, very uh, that are um, that require immunization. So, are we looking at a situation here in BC where employees or employers might mandate vaccinations, and how unpleasant can they make your job if you don't get vaccinated? Joining me now is Leah Moody, managing partner at Semfiro Tumarkin. Uh, she's an employment lawyer. Good morning, Leah. Good morning. How are you? Good. So I thought it was interesting what Biden, the way he, he did, he said, okay, we're going to get tough. But, you know, unless you don't do it, uh, you got to wear a mask and socially distance and may have to get this and may have to do that. Is that kind of, is that the challenge here? If you want to mandate it, but you can't really mandate this kind of stuff? 
Well, I, I mean, that's the open question, right? And I think that a lot of companies in Canada and BC are just sort of sitting on their hands waiting to see how this works out for everybody. Because I understand, you know, Google and Facebook are mandating vaccines. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that we're going to start to see that in some industries and with some companies in Canada. But you're absolutely right about Joe Biden's message, which was that, you know, you're not going to be fired. We're just going to make you do all of these other things in order to keep you safe. The real question and where it's going to get really interesting is whether or not you work for an employer uh, where those things might be impossible, right? Like a fully a fully bustling restaurant that wants to be operating mm-hmm. at 100% capacity again. Yeah, I mean, can you make people really, you know, go back to the office, you know, and must, I mean, how, how do you understand how you can make this happen? You, you just say, you must get vaccinated. Show me, we have no way of actually showing a card. We have no real way of, I mean, there's no system in place for this. No, I mean, I guess, you know, I guess you'd be taking people at their word for the most part. Um, I know that in BC, you do have the vaccination cards. So you would be able to provide some sort of proof of vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that it's it's possible, right? And, and if you look at, I, I understand why, you know, when you first hear something like this, you think there's no way that my employer can tell me to put a needle in my arm, to put mm-hmm. this vaccine in my arm, right? And I get it. I get why people are having this response. But, you know, people also have this response when we were first talking about drug and alcohol testing in the, in the uh, workplace, right? I mean, the idea of having to have your bodily fluid tested, removed from your body and tested was really offensive to some people. Hmm. But the reality of the situation is that employers in BC and across Canada have an obligation to keep the workplace safe. And that is, in terms of the hierarchy of obligation, that is a that is a major one. And that is why there is now an exception in certain industries and with certain companies to perform drug and alcohol testing. And so I can't imagine that if you as an employer can prove that in order to keep your employees safe, your customers safe, your patients safe, whatever the case may be, you need to have a fully vaccinated staff. I can imagine mandatory um, mandatory vaccinations being being permitted. I, I saw a tweet yesterday. Somebody, a restaurant in Vernon, faced this challenge where their employee refused to get vaccinated. He said, the employer said, we, we require this. It's a restaurant. We need you to protect our, each other and our customers. Employee refused uh, and then said, I'm going to sue you if you make me uh, get vaccinated. Is, there, is that the kind of rights, <laughs> potentially, where the kind of scenario we're going to see more and more if somebody's really adamant about not getting vaccinated? Well, I don't know that you can sue somebody directly for requiring you to be vaccinated. You can sue your employer for firing you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, your employer can fire you for any reason, and that includes not being vaccinated, as long as they pay you the appropriate severance package. Right, right? which is set out in the provincial guidelines. It's pretty clear how you do that, right? Well, provincial guidelines and the common law. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the, the common law provides quite a bit more severance than what's provided under the Employment Standards Act. Okay. And that's primarily where you're going to get most lawsuits is because you have a lot of employers saying, well, we only have to give you four weeks, but in actuality, this individual is entitled to more like four to six months of severance. And so in that case, you can absolutely sue somebody for firing you. Um, You can also bring a complaint against an employer for firing you um, for refusal to get vaccinated if your refusal is based on a medical condition or um, a religious association. So uh, both of those things are protected under our human rights Hmm. legislation here in BC. And so if that's the reason why you are not being vaccinated, 
then your employer cannot fire you. That would be considered discriminatory. Okay, so that's interesting. But if you use the blood and alcohol and and you know that kind of testing as a precedent, uh, does it meet? Does it work well for uh, certainly on the? I mean, the mask is one thing because you can see them on people's faces. But vaccination does it work well for mandating either? I guess it's a question. Um, well, I mean, I think that for the most part, mandating is just going to be difficult with something like this anyway, right? Because exactly for that reason, it's the same thing that we are facing with um, cannabis testing mm-hmm. in the workplace, right? We just don't have a scale or an easily discernible way of determining whether or not somebody is intoxicated or whether or not they have THC in their system. Mm-hmm. And so I have a feeling that we are just going to have to be slowly muddling our way through this in the same way that we're doing that with, with cannabis testing in the workplace. Um, but I, I do think that you, you're going to have some employers in some industries that, uh, as Dr. Bonnie Henry said, such as the long-term care facilities, that are going to have a much easier go of it. Hmm. One of the things Biden said as well was he talked about government employees, and then he talked about contractors. And I'm wondering, yeah. first of all, it's okay, okay, that's interesting, because that's a lot of people potentially. Um, and they actually might be more <laughs> willing to do it so they can get those gigs. But... Is there a difference between mandating government employees uh, than, than, than it would be mandating private sector? Is it easier to do it? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that as a government, I mean, you can, you can hand down these mandates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that a lot of employers, private companies in Canada and in BC are waiting for some sort of government guidance on this because, you know, it's largely considered to be something that's within the purview of the government, right? Which is why we've, over the last year and a half, had all of these curtailments to our personal rights and freedoms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do think that in that sense, it might be uh, easier to understand, but I don't think legally the test is any different. I think that it would be essentially the same. What about union, non-union? Is there an ability for unions to be more clear or more able to mandate this kind of stuff? Uh, no, I think that, again, where there's going to be a distinction is, so union and non-union employees and employers are all governed by occupational health and safety regulations. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about mandating vaccines in order to have a safe workplace, that's going to apply to union and non-union. When we're talking about something like Biden saying, you know, government contractors are only going to be able to work with us if they have a fully vaccinated staff, mm-hmm. that's different, right? So you've got a company who can decide however they want to do business, right? I mean, they get to decide who they want to do business with. Uh, but that's not, um, that's not a legal right, right? That's just, that's just something that we recognize as being an inherent right of uh, companies. Okay. So in, in that case, I think that the collective bargaining agreement for unionized employees might factor in more heavily here uh, in terms of how protected or not protected uh, union employees might be in that situation versus non-union. Non-union employees, I mean, I think that restaurants are going to be a really, really interesting conversation here because you've had so many restaurants have mm-hmm. to reduce their capacity, you know, pretty substantially in order to keep their doors open. And, you know, if we're thinking, if you've got, if you live in a, you know, in an area where you know that people are not going to come in unless they know that the staff is fully vaccinated, then that means that you would be suffering from a business perspective. And again, that's not a legal right. You don't have the legal right to, to make as much money as possible, but it is, it is understandable. And so how that's going to play out is uh, hmm. definitely remains open for debate. I have a question when it comes to WorkSafe. Where do they fit in on this whole thing? 
Well, I mean, WorkSafe is going to be primarily the place that we get our guidance from, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's how we're going to know what to do, what's permitted, um, and what things that we need to have in place in order to keep the workplace safe. But that's also going to be the primary place where uh, employees are going to make complaints mm-hmm. um, regarding the safety of their workplace. You know, so speaking from or speaking about individuals who have been working from home and are now going to be asked to, or in some cases ordered to come back to the office or the workplace, you know, I think that you're going to have a lot of individuals saying, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe being in that workplace for whatever mm-hmm. reason it might be. It could be related to the vaccination status of fellow employees, which is going to get very thorny. Um, but in that case, the employee can essentially refuse to return to work until uh, it's been investigated by the workplace. Hmm. And if the employer hasn't, uh, you know, given a satisfactory answer, then the employee can escalate it to WorkSafe. And in that case, you know, they've got investigators who will come into the actual premises and ensure that it is safe uh, for individuals to work there. And once they give that ruling, it's final. And defining safe is the challenge. I mean, I think I think Biden in that clip we played earlier sort of alluded to that. He's mandating this, but you know, if you if if you don't want to have the vaccination, wear a mask, keep socially distanced. I imagine that may be kind of how la- uh, WorkSafe might land on this as well. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. Um, you know, obviously, how we've defined how to keep safe and the various rules we've put in place in order mm-hmm. to ensure safety has been evolving over the last 18 months, right? I mean, I think this time last year, you didn't have anybody wearing masks because I don't think that they were mandated until November Mm -hmm. of 2020, right? So, uh, I mean, assuming that all of the science pretty much stays the same, which is far from guaranteed, I do think that you're going to have a lot of questions about, you know, okay, employer, you know, do you really need to be mandating vaccines in the workplace Hmm when you can just continue to ask people to wear masks, when you can just continue to have socially distanced or you can have plexiglass up or whatever the case may be. That's because we went through the worst of this and we found ways around it. Certainly here in British Columbia, we found very interesting solutions that seem to work. Um, You know, when we're talking about government and we talk about big business, but what about small business and creating a mandatory vax or mask policy? What kind of process should they follow uh, to to ensure the best uh, uptake without being too, you know, dictatorial? So I think that what you have right now is you have a lot of employers who are shying away from, you know, mandating it or requiring it as a condition of employment, mm-hmm. but are strongly encouraging individuals to do it. Um, you've got a lot of policies that, uh, you know, are sort of expressly positive about, you know, their desire to want their staff to be vaccinated. You know, you've got some situations where, you know, you've got a gym that knows that some of their clientele who comes in will only mm-hmm. want to be in an exercise room if they know that everybody, including the instructors, have been vaccinated. And so in that case, the employer might say, you know, you don't have to disclose your vaccination status, but if you aren't vaccinated, you can't teach this class, right? And if you want to teach this class, you've got to provide proof of vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, it's going to be an individual's choice right? It's going to be up to the individual's own consent about whether or not they want to reveal that information. But it could be limiting, very similar to the way that people are going to be limited from a social perspective, right? There's all sorts of conversations about individuals who are unvaccinated, perhaps not being able to go to concerts or not being able to go to sporting events. Right. Um, So (laughs) who 
Who knows, George? That, know. is, the, that is the ultimate answer. Uh, well, and what about grandfather clause? I mean, if a new, it's a for, a new, an old employee, a legacy employee is there, and, the, and then the boss changes the rules, and then, you know, that's going to be great for new employees who sign the employee agreement and have, okay, this is the rules we follow. But if you've been there for a while, you say, hey, I, I've been here for 10 years. I'm not going to follow your rules. Or, or in general, and I don't even know if this re- relates maybe to any, uh, if it's, you know, in general, when you change the rules, uh, employment rules at your, office, at your company, does it, does it, is there any extra power that a legacy employee has over a new one? Yeah, I don't think that that's going to be the case with, um, you know, updating policies, uh, such as a, a vaccination policy. But, you know, generally speaking, if you are an individual who has been employed for a lengthy period of time, and then your employer says, you know what, actually, instead of doing the midnight shift, we're now going to be open at 6am instead, and you've got to work the daytime. Or, mm-hmm. you know, instead of uh, working in Vancouver, we're relocating to Victoria. Any big change like that is not going to be something that a legacy employee, uh, if we can call them that, mm-hmm. it, it has to agree with. They certainly can, but they are also in a position where they can say, you know what, this is a, you know, a, a condition of my employment. It's an it's a right. essential term of the relationship that I've had to date. And you changing that is technically terminating me. Hmm. So, I'm ah. going to construe it as a termination, and now you owe me severance. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay, Leah, I appreciate you being here, <laughs> filling, filling me in on this information and filling us all in, and, and thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure, George. Thanks. Joining me now to talk about this is Don Drummond, Stoffer Dunning Fellow and Adjunct Professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Hi, Don. Good morning. Thanks for joining me. So how bad is it? How bad is it? Well, I really hasten to separate two things. Uh, we're, I think we're all shocked, if not flabbergasted, at the sudden rise in deficits and debts associated mm-hmm. with the response to the pandemic. Uh, and I don't think many would question that that was wise and that was necessary. But what we're saying is it looks like that rise in the debt level is going to be with us for a very long time and, and actually could even increase. And there's a, a little-known chart in the budget, page 55 in the budget, actually, that has okay. a projection all the way out to 2055. And mm-hmm. it, it actually doesn't even provide any assumptions, but it basically does some vigorous hand-waving and saying, don't worry about this. There's nothing to see here. The debt burden will come back to where it was in 2019, albeit 34 years from now. And mm-hmm. we were very intrigued by that. With some difficulty, we uncovered the assumptions behind them. They're very optimistic. And all we did is tweak them just a little bit, just a little bit uh-huh. lower growth and a little bit higher interest rates. And all of a sudden, instead of going back to a 30% debt should be ratio, it continues to rise to 60%. So it really changes the interpretation right. of where we are in 2021. This might not just be a temporary blip that puts up to the deficit in debt. A lot of the spending is not just related to the pandemic, it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. And this could see us going back into the kind of fiscal situation we saw back in the 1990s. And th- that should be worrying. We hear about this debt ratio, and then we hear about debt, we hear deficits, you know, all these different things that a lot of people don't quite, you know, go, oh, what's the difference? But the ratio is one of the ones that seems to become the more, uh, one that we really go, okay, it's just, I think, how do you put that in a, into a layman's terms? It's like a, your debt is your mortgage. Uh, what's the, as far as based on your income? How, how do I make this simple to understand what a ratio well, I guess is? If you looked at it from a household, we typically get concerned if somebody has a, an income getting a debt level getting close to their income, we'd be very concerned about that. Mm-hmm. In fact, few people have that. In, in aggregate, it's getting to about 70%, and, and we're very concerned about that national level. But we could, that on an individual household basis, 
that makes it very hard for an individual to cover their own interest payments, and it's the same thing for a country. Uh, right now, because of extraordinary low interest rates, it's not that difficult to cover the interest in the public debt, but those interest rates will inevitably go up. I would argue that they need to go up. They're actually causing all kinds of imbalances by remaining this low. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes more difficult, and it means less and less of the tax dollars people send to Ottawa is available for current services like mm-hmm. health and education. More and more of it goes to pay interest on things we've already consumed. And that, of course, was the big difficulty in the 1990s. So much of the money was committed to past debt. Mm-hmm. I think it also has a huge intergenerational aspect. Uh, the next generation is going to have to devote all of its resources to deal with climate adaptation. I, I didn't say climate correction because I think it's probably gone too far. They're going to have to adapt to it. And they kind of need a free hand to do that, but mm-hmm. we're not leaving them a free hand. We're leaving them a big debt There's burden no that was already there before yeah. the pandemic, and now we're leaving them to pick up the, the cost of the pandemic as well. It's, it's going to be quite a load and subjects them and the economy to a lot of risk. You talk about the 90s, and I remember Paul Martin was the finance minister back then, and every, I remember several uh, budgets in a row. He was looking at $10, $20 billion surpluses that he was paying down the debt. He was very focused on paying down the debt at that time. Um, you know, and it was interesting. And if you go back to the 70s with Trudeau One, who was honest, you know, I think because we had double-digit inflation, there was lots of things going on. We had a lot of challenges with our, our finances. We had a lot of debts. So that's when we really went started going into debt. Now we've got Trudeau too, who's faced with the pandemic. But also, he wasn't like, you know being very spendthrifty before the pandemic. He was you know heading into deficit territories. There seems to be a mood of it goes in waves. And I think in the '90s that Paul Martin was you know understood that he had to get that debt down. The '70s people maybe weren't paying attention, but now it seems like people are ah oh, debt, no big deal. Like we seem to be okay with it now. You put your finger exactly on it. It is fascinating to observe the cycles in groupthink. Mm-hmm. Uh, even as recently before the mid-1990s, even like 1993, there wasn't all that much concern about the rising debt burden. And, and in fact, uh, the first Paul Martin budget in 1994 didn't do all that much. And for about a month, it seemed to go okay. And then just bang, everything changed around. Uh, the Wall Street Journal said, welcome, uh, Canada, you're an honorary member of the third world. Uh, the Mexican peso is under pressure, and all the international uh, newspapers started calling the Canadian dollar the northern peso, and Canadians got really annoyed by that and hurt mm-hmm. by that. And then all of a sudden, they forced governments to do something, and that remained the mood for not that long, you know, for about five years or so, mm-hmm. and then it was sort of back to not worrying about it. But now, as you say, they've bought it in that endless war between history repeats itself or this time is going to be different. Everybody is shunk. This time is going to be different. Interest rates are going to stay low forever. Mm-hmm. Economic growth will for always be above interest rates. In fact, that defies theory because if you think about it as an individual, if your rate of return on borrowing money was greater than the cost of borrowing that money, you would borrow to infinity, right? Because <laughs> you know you would always cover the cost of the borrowing. And that's the situation we've been in in this extraordinary period having a financial crisis followed by a pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it's been over long-term history, and that's not the way it should be in theory. And yet that's what all of the federal and provincial budgets are showing, that even the parliamentary budget office and their long-term forecast shows that. That's not really covering our risks. And, you know, speaking of that risk, I mean, speaking to an audience in, in British Columbia, 
who would ever think, looking at the future, that we're not going to have more shocks and more costly shocks? I mean, right. We're living that. I mean, there's not very many people in the world that are not subject to a fire or a flooding right at this very right. moment. And those things to be coming mm-hmm. faster and faster. And those need resources to deal with it. And you can't do that if you're constantly paying interest on debt that you've picked up in some previous time. Yeah, you plan for the worst and hope for the best in yourself, is how we act ourselves. Uh, but even personally, you look at you know life insurance and all these insurances are going up, 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 and certainly home insurance are going up, up, up. So it's like, because they understand the risk is much higher. I mean, this debt, this the, the budget for 2021 is $354 billion deficit. The next one they were project, projecting $154 billion. This doesn't even include the provinces and their debts. So we're not even counting those debts. Well, in the analysis we did with the CD Howe, you know, our focus started off on the federal government, and we were rather shocked at how, how little the change to growth rates and interest rates it took to have the debt burden going to 60% instead of 30%. But then we decided, well, let's add on the provinces. And doing the same analysis, the combined federal and provincial debt went to 140%. Well, that's the highest it's been in the post-World War II wow. experience, way above what it was in the 1990s. That that should be very scary. And I, I guess, given my age, maybe not that much of a worry for me, but it comes back to that intergenerational aspect. This is very, very unfair mm-hmm. for, for younger people who are going to bear the cost of that burden not to mention other aspects of being shut out of the housing market and et cetera. So there's very much an intergenerational aspect of it as well. It's uh, and I, that's a really good point. I have three you know, young kids, and I think about their future. And one of the things that drives me crazy, and, and municipal governments, at least here in BC, aren't allowed to have deficits. But I hear this all the time, and it drives me crazy because the simple way to deal with you know problem debt or finding money is you just tax people, and they go, "Oh, it's just a cup of coffee. I'm going to increase this because you know it's a it's only a cup of coffee a day." Uh, and I hate this analogy because it's, a, it's first of all, coffee is expensive now, but second of all, you know, one cup, two cups, how many more cups of coffee are you taking from me? Uh, this argument that you know, that this is nothing. This is a little bit of money that we're going to take from you as a taxpayer because we have to, because we have to pay for all this stuff. That's a, there's an imbalance. How can we keep, we can't keep doing this. We can't, can't go back to the same well all the time. Well, I, I mean, you're cutting to the fundamental of it. We, we want, or at least our government is thinking that we want a whole bunch of new program spending. And, and we do. I mean, there, there's needs out there. There's no doubt about it. But it comes to the question, should they not be paid for? Mm-hmm. And if they should be paid for, who should pay for them? And by borrowing the money, we're saying that the people who are going to start the programs and benefit from them are not the ones that should pay for them. Some future generation should pay for them. And we hope that they won't have to pay an awful lot because maybe interest rates may be very low, but they, they might not. No. But there's just an attitude right now that you can have it all and not pay for it. And I, you know, when I put this argument, people wrongly interpret I'm against all the spending programs, and, and, and I'm not. But shouldn't they be paid for by somebody? And you, you, you could even ask that question about the pandemic. Who should pay for the extraordinary government intervention to mitigate the economic damage from the pandemic? We, the people who are living forward, are the beneficiaries of that. But if you look at the long-term budget plans of federal and provincial governments, they're basically taking that cost, putting it in a box, wrapping a ribbon around it, and saying, 
we're passing that off to the next generation. Mm -hmm. We were the ones that experienced the pandemics. We were the ones that benefited from the action, but we're not going to pay for it. But we heard today the finance minister, Freeland, said uh, she's going to extend the the Canada recovery benefits, the the, the, uh, sickness benefits, all the different things. She's extending it another month, uh, which is going to cost how much more? Like another $100 million, $200 million, $300 million? How much is that going to cost us? Um, but we need it. We're still, I mean, I think actually you look at Ontario is much worse off than BC as far as where you are in the pandemic. But don't you think there needs to be this injection right now from the government to keep the economy going? Yeah, you well, know, again, I, I separate the stuff that's related to the pandemic. And, and that's a tap that can be open, but it should also be closed mm-hmm. once the pandemic influences. But there's a lot of other spending that's ongoing. I mean, just as one example, very recently, the increase, the old age security and the guaranteed income supplement. And the argument was a lot of seniors are living in poverty. Well, that may apply to the guaranteed income supplement, but seniors on average have the lowest poverty rate in Canada of any groups. I'm not saying they're all well off, but there are not that many living in poverty anymore, thanks to the old age security and the guaranteed Mm -hmm. income supplement. But they swept both of those in there. If it truly was a poverty issue they wished to address, they would have increased only the guaranteed income supplement because that goes to the lower. But they did it to everybody. So, again, that's not related to the pandemic. It's If you wanted to ad- address poverty, you would do something with you know, families with children. You would do something with single adults where the poverty incidence is quite a bit higher. So there's a lot of spending almost coming in the guise of the pandemic. They're not directed to it, hmm. but it's going on for a very long period of time, and, and all with borrowed funds not met by taxation. Because, of course, is the, the, uh, the other theme of the, of the current time is thou shall never raise taxes. You can increase spending, but don't raise taxes. So the data is in on the last election uh, in BC last fall. This was uh, a very notable one in our province's history. It was the first ever BC election during a pandemic and our first unscheduled election since 2001. So how did this uh, impact turnout and cost? I'm joined by Andrew Watson, Director of Communications for Elections BC, whose report just came out, and he's going to fill me in on that. Hey, Andrew. Hi, George. How are you? Good. So give it to me straight. What did it cost us? Sure. So Elections BC published our report on the 2020 provincial general election uh, earlier this week, Mm -hmm. and the report covers all aspects of our administration of the election, uh, including uh, cost, and there's a lot of detailed information within the report. But overall, the 2020 provincial election in BC cost about $51.6 million to administer, or $14.64 per registered voter in the province. Uh, That is an increase over the 2017 election in BC, which cost about $39 million, Mm. or around $12 per registered voter. So a few of the um, reasons for that increase are certainly unique to the 2020 election. Um, Others are sort of expected uh, in terms of what an election costs uh, versus the one held previously to it. In terms of unique costs, um, the pandemic drove a number of those. So in 2020, we needed to purchase a lot of supplies that Mm -hmm. we don't normally need uh, for a provincial election in BC. Um, These are things like personal protective equipment for election officials, uh, hand sanitizer in voting places, masks, gloves, acrylic barriers, you name it. There was a number of different products that we had to purchase that were unique to 2020. And um, on the scale of a, of a provincial election in BC, obviously we're purchasing um, large quantities of those types of items. 
Um, another another pandemic factor was the really significant increase in the number of voters voting by mail in 2020. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there were costs associated with that in terms of actually producing those voting packages to a much uh, higher number than we normally do, mailing them, receiving them, screening them, those sorts of things. And you pay for the postage uh, both ways, right? So that's that's correct. Yes. Yeah, the package is, is postage paid for the right. voter. Um, and then um, just other things that increased since 2017. So yeah. um, election official wages, right. uh, things like rent for district electoral offices and voting places, particularly in the lower mainland, increased significantly since 2017. And in terms of space, we tended to look for uh, larger spaces in 2020 than we had in the past to ensure that oh, for social um, distancing physical and distancing yeah. could happen mm-hmm. and all of the pandemic safety procedures could take place. There. One of the things I thought was interesting was uh, that you weren't surprised by, <laughs> it sort of noted this, that you weren't surprised by the election coming. And, and, and I think there's two reasons for that. But um, you seem less surprised than perhaps the BC Liberals were about this election, especially as you ramped things up in July. Why, why, why did you, how did you know this? And did you share this information with anybody at the time? Yeah, I mean, we were under a minority government at the time. And whenever that is the case, you know, any election agency um, is going to be at a higher state of readiness, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing the fact that um, uh, an unscheduled election could occur uh, sooner than the fixed date. Um, we we didn't know an unscheduled election would be called in 2020, uh, but it's part of our mandate to uh, be ready to administer an election whenever one should be called. So mm-hmm. uh, following the 2017 election, when a minority government was elected in B.C., um, you know, we quickly achieved a state of readiness to make sure that we would be ready for an early election. Um, but in early 2020, with the onset of the pandemic, um, our plans, we recognized that our plans needed to change at that point in order to ensure that if an early election were to be held, um, that we would be ready. Um, we looked at other jurisdictions you know, across the world that had held pandemic elections, saw mm-hmm. that there was a large increase in demand for voting by mail, um, looked at things like changing procedures within voting places to make sure that in-person voting could happen safely as well. So in the, in the first half of 2020, that was really um, our focus, and then those preparations ramped up uh, leading into the fall. Politics aside, would it have been easier to hold an election this summer than last year, given where we are in the pandemic? You know, that's not really our role to, to speculate on that. I think our role as the, the neutral and, and nonpartisan administrator yes, of the process. But there were a lot of unknowns. Be, there were a lot of unknowns last year. It was riskier. We didn't, the pandemic was kind of in the heat of it. We didn't have a vaccines. Uh, you kind of were doing that. You sound, you know, you had the list of things that you had to purchase. But it certainly seems like, you know, and it's not political, but it just seems like it would have been easier now because it would have, and I'm not sure if it would have saved you money. It probably not, but it just seems we feel more controlled now. We have a more controlled environment than we felt last fall. Anyways, you're not going to answer the question, I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> well, I think I think the it, it's certainly fair to say that um, the pandemic in elections, like in many areas, uh, introduces a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our focus was making sure that uh, we mitigated the risk as much as possible and we're ready. Mm-hmm. Like the, in terms of the things we did differently in 2020, particularly about vote-by-mail, like we had about 6,500 vote-by-mail ballots in 2017. 
in 2020, we had close to 600,000. That's crazy. So, but you know, it's, it's, it's a ma- it's huge. massive it's, increase, and it takes time to prepare for that, right? Yeah, but it's a great step in in the democratic process, don't you think? I mean, I th- but it's also a bit disappointing because turnout went down by about 10%, I think, wasn't it? And you sort of think, well, we made it, you know, mailing in's easier than going somewhere. You'd think that might have encouraged more people to vote, but in fact, in general, overall, the numbers went down, right? As a percentage of registered voters, the turnout did go down in 2020. So Mm -hmm. the report outlines that uh, in 2020, around 53.9% of registered voters uh, participated uh, versus around 61% in 2017. Uh, One silver lining to that is it was still the second highest number of overall ballots cast in a provincial election. So around 1.89 million in 2020 versus 1.98 million in in 2017. Mm-hmm. So from an overall perspective, um I think that's that's important to bear in mind. Our focus is always to just make the process as accessible as possible. So obviously in a in a pandemic election, vote by mail was a really large part of that. Um but also just making sure that um there's as many in-person voting opportunities available for voters and that they're safe and that they can feel they can take advantage of those opportunities if they choose to. You're uh now off the hook for 4 years and we think for the provincial election but we have a municipal elections coming up next year. Your role is changing as uh, in the provin- in the municipal elections more and more it seems like every election. But what is your role? It seems like in Vancouver the election for mayor has already started but uh we've got like 10 people already announced. But uh what is your role in the municipal elections for next year that we that people need to consider? Yeah, so Elections BC does not administer voting or candidate nominations mm-hmm. for municipal elections in BC, uh, but we are responsible for administering the provisions of the Local Elections Campaign Financing Act. Mm-hmm. So those are all the rules around um, how candidates and electoral organizations at the local level uh, can raise money um, and the disclosure around um, you know their their campaign spending. So it's mostly on the electoral finance side of things. And the financing regulations really get, as of January 1st next year, that's when the things get really tough for these, you know, they have to really you know, keep track of their cash. Is that right? Yeah, there's a number of, of requirements. And, uh, you know, if, if individuals are uh, considering running, we encourage them to, to contact us to, to go over those rules. Many parts of the province are under a heat warning as round two of extreme temperatures arrive in BC. And while the mercury shouldn't uh, surge past the devastating highs we saw at the end of June, British Columbians are being urged to take precautions, especially as we hear details of the death count from the last heat wave in BC. Here's Lisa LaPointe's, here's Lisa LaPointe, BC's chief coroner, yesterday on The Jill Bennett Show. From June 25th to, through July 1st, the province experienced 815 sudden and unexpected deaths. And those are deaths that um, the coroners uh, received reports of. We've now had a, a chance to look at the sort of the preliminary information on those 815 deaths and have determined that as of this date, 570 of them were uh, due to the heat. So, um, but for the heat, the extreme heat that, that the um, individual experienced, they would not have died on that day. Um, really, really tragic. So many families, um, you know, uh, left uh, devastated and um, something we had never, ever seen before in this province. That's just, that really just shows how important it is to keep cool. So what can people do to stay cool as temperatures get into the mid-30s in the lower mainland? To talk more about this, we are joined by Adam Resnick, uh, an assistant professor of environmental systems at the UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. Hey, Adam. 
Hi, good morning. How are you? Good. Hey, uh, how ready are our homes, for example, in BC for this heat? Uh, well, it depends on where you are. Uh, some homes might be lucky to have uh, some form of cooling, an air conditioner, and uh, many, of course, we know uh, don't. Uh, and mm-hmm. so we're, we have homes that were designed in a climate that was much more milder than what we're increasingly encountering. So it, it's hard to give a, a ruler to this. So I'd say in general, we're probably not as equipped for this future heat uh, as we've been dealing. But there are some things we can do, especially a heat wave like this, which is hot, but like uh, was said, not the extremes we we had a few weeks ago, there are some ways we can manage it and bear bear through it in, in a lot of our, our dwellings. Not with, you know, without giant renovations to our homes. Uh, what, what can we do in the short term and what can, what should we be thinking about for the long term? So first short term, what should we do? Yeah, short term is uh, a lot of obvious things that are common sense to many of us. You know, uh, things that generate heat in the home are the kinds of things we want to get out or not do. If you have any appliances, electrical appliances that you can turn off, uh, do so. They, they stop producing at least a bit of heat and contribute if you have blinds uh, that would get the sun on a normal day, closing the blinds and preventing that sun from coming in is a good idea. Some things uh, I, I recommend, uh, and one thing that, that I don't think we always appreciate as much is, you know, when should we be opening the windows mm-hmm. during a heat wave? Yeah. And intuitively, for those of us who don't have air conditioning, and I, much of my life, I'd just keep the windows wide open. Yeah. Why, why would you ever close the windows? But in many ways, in a heat wave, we can think of our homes not unlike how we think about them in the wintertime when it's cold out. In the mornings, especially if we keep our windows open at night, and it's a good idea that we do that, mm-hmm. our, our homes hopefully are relatively cool. And they, they should be or they might be somewhat comfortable under this heat wave in the early mornings. When you see the temperature outside getting warmer, the moment the temperature outside is warmer than it is inside, any of that air coming in is going to actually warm up your home then really help you cool down. So sometimes it's actually a good idea to close your windows by mid-morning and think about opening them up again later in the afternoon when it cools down again outside. In some ways, you kind of keep the walls and the floors and ceilings of your home, which might be still cool in mid-morning, as a bit of a battery, helping keep that cold in, so to speak. Now, everybody's home is different. In some cases, this might not be the right idea. But in general, for a, for a lot of homes, this is not a bad idea in mid-morning to actually try to close in everything to keep that cold in as much as possible and really open the windows the moment the indoor temperature is higher or equal to what's happening Ca- outside. Counterintuitive, I think, for most of us, especially here in BC, where we're sort of used to 21 degrees as our average uh, outside. So, But, you know, exactly. what about long-term planning? I mean, this sadly, this seems to be happening more and more often. We get these heat waves, we get this heat, we get this inconsistent temperatures. You know, what can we, what should policy, you know, besides, you know, changing the environment and changing the world, uh, what do we need to do from a policy point of view in this province to get people building homes that are perhaps better suited for the climate change that we're facing. Yeah, well, for, for that, I think all of us um, should think about what happened a few weeks ago, because what what you know is telling to me is that when that occurred, the fact that BC was recording temperatures that were just a few degrees shy of the hottest temperatures ever recorded on mm-hmm. this planet, uh, and that scientists and, and meteorologists didn't look at that as saying this is a once-in-a-century event, or, or it was, mm-hmm. but this is not a once-in-a-century event for the next century, tells us that w- we do need to think about cooling. I mean, there is really no ceiling fans, and, and this opening-closing windows is not really going to help us if we have a four-day heat event of 42-plus mm-hmm. degrees 
degree temperature. So mm-hmm. the obvious solution answer is that we, we do need cooling, likely, or we need access to cooling. The question is whether homes should be retrofitting with, with air conditioners in the long term if, if that type of extreme heat is going to become uh, more frequent than we'd ever imagine, or if we need to find solutions where those who are most at risk in our, in our societies can get access to cooling. In Europe, they have already a bit more of a history in, in really creating cooling centers or trying to create these cooling centers for communities where people congregate in these extreme heat waves as opposed to relying on air conditioning at home. Yeah, that or, or people booking hotel rooms is what I heard a lot of people doing that in this last... Uh... Absolutely. We, we had friends doing doing the same. And I mean, one thing I, I, I would say just to speak to the long term is it, it does connect, of course, to the climate change issue in terms of, you know, what do we do in BC? Mm-hmm. So I, I can say we need uh, probably engineered cooling solutions and the obvious uh, choice there, which seems the only choice, is air conditioning. And researchers like me and other researchers, even you know, companies in this field, are, are trying to you know, push and look towards alternatives. Because in the medium term, we might go towards air conditioners. But in the long term, the challenge we face is that this is not just happening in BC. This is happening elsewhere. Uh, the, some of the agencies in the world that look at the data see in the next two to three decades, about a 300% increase hmm. in global energy demand for cooling. And if we do that using traditional air conditioning technology, we're only going to exacerbate the problem that we're actually addressing at the moment, which is climate change. So here in BC, what I would call for is, and this is particularly when we talk about policy and what we want to incentivize, is we're one of the last really wealthy regions of the world to adopt air conditioning. We've been Mm -hmm. lucky to have mild weather. This is now changing in the future. And if we can find and develop and deploy alternatives that work here, uh, we might actually give the world a better chance to have much more energy efficient cooling solutions in their uh, parts of the world. So in the real long term, it's not just cooling, but really different technologies for cooling that we haven't actually uh, really tried and tested as well in the past. 